During the season of Epiphany, Bill, Katie, and I are exploring Jesus' early ministry to see what we can learn about Christ-like virtue in this time of pandemic, racial discord, and divisiveness. Borrowing a phrase from Reinhold Niebuhr, this sermon series is called Impossible Possibility for an Impossible Time. Dining with people we disagree with seemed particularly impossible right now, so I chose Luke chapter 5, verses 27 through 39 to guide us today. After this, he went out and saw a tax collector named Levi sitting at the tax booth, and he said to him, follow me. And he got up, left everything, and followed him. Then Levi gave a great banquet for him in his house, and there was a large crowd of tax collectors and others sitting at the table with them. The Pharisees and their scribes were complaining to his disciples, saying, Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? Jesus answered, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick I have come to call not the righteous, but the sinners to repentance. Then they said to him, John's disciples, like the disciples of the Pharisees, frequently fast and pray, but your disciples eat and drink. Jesus said to them, you cannot make wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them, can you? The days will come when the bridegroom will be taken away from them, and they will fast in those days. He also told them a parable. No one tears a piece from a new garment and sews it onto an old garment. Otherwise, the new will be torn and the piece from the new will not match the old. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. Otherwise, the new wine will burst the skins and will be spilled and the skins destroyed. But new wine must be put into fresh wineskins and no one, after drinking old wine, desires new wine, but says the old is good. Thanks be to God for God's holy word. Please pray with me. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of all our hearts be pleasing to you, O God, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. A few years ago, the New York Times published an essay titled, To Fall in Love with Anyone, Do This. The author used techniques from a research study which claimed that if a couple answered 36 questions and then stared into one another's eyes for four minutes, they would fall in love. The first question of the 36, who do you most want to invite to dinner? If it is hard to come up with an answer to that question, perhaps it is because the pandemic or polarization or politics has shortened our lists of dining, desired dining companions. Disconnection and discord are part of what make this an impossible time to dine together. For Levi, the top of his dining companion list might have Jesus listed, because there Levi is, sitting at his tax booth, bilking his fellow Jewish citizens on behalf of Herod when Jesus shows up. Now maybe Jesus stares into his eyes with a withering or a welcoming gaze. We don't know. But hearing just two words, follow me, Levi leaves everything behind and throws a dinner party. 
He invites his new friends and Jesus and his disciples and his tax collector buddies from work and some religious folks too. And the appetizers are just being cleared for the next course when the Pharisees begin to ask some uncomfortable questions. What are those people doing here, they wonder. Jesus answers, I'm like a doctor here to change minds. The author of Luke uses the familiar Greek word for repentance, metanoia. Then the questions get even more personal, comparing the spiritual practices of Jesus' followers to the followers of John and the Pharisees. Jesus reminds them that because of who he is, his presence is worthy of a celebration. And then, in typical Jesus style, he ends with a parable. Meanwhile, Levi, the host, has said nothing. Perhaps he's making a mental note of who not to invite to his next shindig. What is the everything that Levi leaves behind? Whose mind is being changed here? I heard inklings of a change of mind in Leon Cooper's story, which was featured in Cooperman's story, which was featured in this week's Washington Post. The article highlights the fairly non-extravagant life of a billionaire 78-year-old hedge fund manager who is making money faster than he and his wife Toby can give it away. A nice problem to have. Born to poor immigrant parents, he paid his way through college where he met his wife. And following Warren Buffett, he and his wife have pledged to give their wealth away. Not too long ago, he settled an insider trading charge with the SEC. And he receives a regular barrage of emails, both accusing him of being all that is wrong with this country and asking for donations to keep the American dream alive. The article says he'd always imagined himself as a rags-to-riches hero, only to find himself cast as the greedy villain in the story of economic inequality run amok. It was the title of the article, Moral Calculations of a Billionaire, which drew me in, perhaps because I'm married to someone who spent two decades in the high-frequency trading industry before leaving it behind. I'm curious about the questions Cooperman is asking himself. And those questions seem to arise out of his interactions with people. When he drives his Hyundai past the food bank lines during the pandemic, he recalls a poem written by his granddaughter, whom he describes as a socialist type in favor of wealth redistribution. His brother's death causes him to wonder if sitting at his trading desk all day is the best use of his time. So he goes to speak with some college students from low-income households and he sees that the path he took from rags to riches would be a lot harder for them to follow today. About his own wealth, he asks, what is enough? Now, Cooperman may not be leaving behind his 12-hour days at the trading desk, but perhaps his questions indicate there's a hint of some sort of change, new ideas brewing. Twitter responded predictably to this story. Hedge fund managers like tax collectors are not the most popular people in our society. An heiress launched a 20-tweet scathing attack. How quickly our conversations and our comments devolve into politically charged shouting matches and Twitter tirades. We are divided and being divided. 
No one seems to change their perspective in the comment threads on social media, do they? But could they, or we, over dinner? Journalist and policy analyst Ezra Klein researched the causes of growing divisions in America in his book, Why We're Polarized. Building on the work of other scholars, he unpacks the idea of this mega identity where one single vote we cast not only indicates our political party maybe, but also our religious, gender, race, and geographic identities as well. And when we're presented with negative partisanship, our human instinct is to defend our identities. When, one, when the mega identity is activated, then all of our identities must be defended. This, he argues, is one reason we are more likely to build moats and silos rather than bridges. I think Wordle is popular in part because it doesn't ask for any identifying information. There are no curated ads to entice us to buy something, no algorithms calculated to elicit anger about issues. Josh Wordle created it for his partner, who likes to play word games. It's quick and fun and somewhat of a bridge builder in our world today. Now that it has been purchased by a media company, many are wondering if it will become just another cookie tracking internet tool to leverage identifying crumbs for politics or profit. I hope not, because our family Wordle text thread gives us one daily common experience shared across the miles. If Jesus were alive today, perhaps Levi's banquet of diverse guests wouldn't have happened. But dinner table conversations may be exactly how we begin to bridge the divides in our world. Klein dives deep into the why of polarization while offering few solutions, but his suggestion that we rediscover a politics of place rooted more locally than nationally brings us, if not around the same table, at least closer together. Proximity may be the antidote to polarization. Jesus comes to change our minds where they need changing, bringing us closer to God and to one another. Jesus shows up in our conversations in a divided world. And aren't we hungry for dialogue with others? I want to know people who are different than me is a statement I hear often in our adult ed gatherings. You see this hunger reflected in initiatives focused on gathering around the table. There are many, but I'll highlight just one, Heal America. They just released a film called Breaking Bread, Conversations About Race. Heal America was started in 2016 by Bishop Omar Jawar after a Dallas gunman killed five police officers and injured another 11 in response to the killings of Alton Sterling and Philando Castile. In 2018, the bishop brought Alton Sterling's family and the families of two of the widows of the Dallas police officers together on stage to share their stories. They cried and they found common ground the Heal America Breaking Bread Project is rooted in the belief that to heal America, we must be willing to break bread with anyone, even those people that we disagree with. Here's Jesus again, showing up at our tables with unlikely guest lists, an impossible possibility in an impossible time. 
Rabbi Brad Hirschfeld's career has been dedicated to finding common ground, to encouraging people with diverse perspectives to share their doubts and their loves. His book, You Don't Have to Be Wrong for Me to Be Right, is where I first encountered the poem in the bulletin today, The Place Where We Are Right. Hirschfeld says that the future of the world depends on the answer to the question, how elastic is your narrative? Brittle narratives are those that are either wrong or right, with no room for doubt or the experiences of others. But elastic narratives allow us to hold the both and of our experience along with the experiences of our neighbors. Elasticity allows us to find common ground rather than trampling it and destroying it. Jesus closes the dinner table discussion with a parable meant to stretch our narrative. No one sews a piece from a new garment onto an old garment. That makes both unusable. New wine in old wineskins will burst the skins. While Jesus is the incarnation of something new, the wine a symbol of God's present and coming reign, commentators have noted that Jesus still has a regard for the old. He isn't calling for its destruction. In Christ, we leave everything and put on a new identity, a garment stretchy enough to love and listen to our neighbors. Jesus plows up our mega-identity-fueled beliefs based on our own smaller view of the world. What is Jesus whispering into your ear? Is it a place to show up? A person to call for a conversation? If that seems challenging, you know, you can start with Zoom or treat it like a first date, have coffee, and if that goes well, then invite them to dinner. Do take care when dealing with people who seek to belittle or abuse you. Remember that it is Jesus' work to change people's mind. Our work is to be like Levi, to recognize Jesus when he shows up, to leave behind old perspectives and brittle narratives, and to invite people to dinner. Engaging in hard conversations is a way of living in a world as someone who listens for the whisper of the divine. Jesus helps us to envision a world where these dinner gatherings are not unusual. It's just the way things are and the way God intends them to be. And there, amidst the clank of forks against plates, a distant whisper of a plow will be heard on the wind a plow turning up the hard paths that we have trampled, transforming the soil into a field where peace and love flourish in the common ground. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen.